And what we're going to do right now is we're going to get into God's Word. So if you guys wouldn't mind opening to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. Thank you. Ah, yes. Lozenges. So I got my tea right here. I got one more service to do here today, so we'll see how I can make it. All right. You guys in Mark chapter 2? I'm going to drink my hot tea and look really cool I'm doing that, all right? Mark chapter 2. All right. I want to do this before we jump in, kind of by way of preface. Um, Mark basically lays out for us in his gospel, and he's already painted for us several pictures about Jesus that are really central to what Mark wants us to understand about Jesus. What he wants us to see about Jesus, first and foremost, is that Jesus is a king. But unlike other kings who oftentimes come and they bring oppression, this king comes and he releases people from oppression. Unlike other kings that come and bring affliction and pain and spill blood, this king comes and has his blood spilled and releases people who are in the throes of affliction. This is, this is the king that Mark wants us to understand. He's a good king. He introduces us to his name by way of the Greek term, which is Christos, or the Hebrew word Mashiach. But the word Christos or Mashiach literally means king. So I've already said this to you guys several times, but every time you read in your Bible, king, or Christ, I should say, you can interpret that as just being king. It's the same idea, that Jesus is king. He's a good king. He's a king that comes to save people. He's a king that comes to rescue. And already we've seen Jesus doing this several times throughout the entire passage or throughout the entire book. And we've only gotten to about chapter 2. For instance, Jesus restores the sanity of a man who was formerly oppressed by demons. Right? He was in the throes of demons, demonic oppression. Jesus restores him. Jesus restores the health to Peter's mother-in-law. She was sick. In other words, as soon as she was healed, she gets up and starts serving again, which means that while she was sick, she couldn't do anything. She was bound. She was oppressed. She wasn't free, in other words. The moment she was set free, she started using her freedom to bring glory to God and bring blessing to other people. That's what Jesus seeks to do. Jesus also restores cleanness to a man who was diseased by this loathsome disease called leprosy. They were unclean. They were separated from the people of Israel. But Jesus does the impossible. He heals this guy. Not just only heals him, but cleanses him. In other words, reintroduces him back into the life, into the family, into the happenings of the life of the people of Israel. Jesus restores wholeness to a man who is imprisoned in a paralyzed body. So imagine... Think of it this way. I mean, we can look at a person, for example, who is paralyzed. They're, in a sense, kind of in a prison. They are not able to run. They're not free to jump on a trampoline. They're not free to go hike a mountain, not free to ride a bicycle without some sort of other means or helps. But what Jesus does is he comes to this person who is paralyzed, and he completely frees him. This is what this king does. This is the type of idea or legacy that Mark wants us to see that he leaves. Jesus then restores dignity to this guy by the name of Levi. He's a tax collector. Formerly, this guy was literally despised and rejected by everybody. Everybody hated tax collectors. He had no dignity. He was the type of guy that everybody would have spit in his face. Everybody would have talked about him behind his back. Nobody would have invited him to parties. Nobody would have wanted to hang out with him. Nobody would have wanted to spend any time with him, have meals with him, do anything with him. But what does Jesus do? Shows up, says, Matthew, follow me. Levi, follow me. First things, let's have priority here. Let's have dinner at your house. Jesus sits down and has dinner with them. In other words, words, what Jesus does is he restores dignity to this guy. 
This guy was a guy that was completely hated and despised by everybody. But Jesus restores that dignity to people. Mark wants us to understand that Jesus is a king that restores things, not steals things, not takes things, not brings death, but gives life. That's the type of king that Jesus is. He's a good king. And what we're going to take a look at today is that Jesus really restores the Sabbath, the Sabbath rest. That's the main point or the kernel that we're going to be taking a look at here today is that Mark now focuses upon the issue of the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath is the oldest of all Jewish traditions. We'll see in a second is it's actually rooted in creation itself. But what had happened was it was hijacked by the religious leaders, and it became sort of this burdensome day that rather than taking a day off where you can just enjoy God, love other people, have time to hang out with your family, enjoy some sort of recreation, now you've got to ask yourself, is this type of recreation the type of recreation I can, I can have? Can I take a nap on the Sabbath? Does my nap fit within the Sabbath laws? All these crazy rules and restrictions was now added to it. And so rather than being a day of rest, it became a day of burden. Jesus is like, I'm going to take the Sabbath back. I want to restore it. Because Jesus comes along as a king to relieve people from oppression, of which the Sabbath became a form of religious oppression. So in other words, you can look at it this way, with regard to, like, the Sabbath. Jesus does not come to sort of modify religion or to change it. Jesus actually comes to destroy religion. This is why I love Jesus. This is why you should love Jesus, too. And if you are religious, if you are a religious, self-arrogant, pietistic-type person, you better feel threatened by Jesus. You should. Because Jesus comes, and he seeks to destroy all sorts of means that try to straitjacket his good work, his good word through some sort of means of religion or self-righteousness. That's what is on Jesus' radar screen today, on his target. This is what he's aiming for. This is what he will fire at. He's not trying to get rid of the Sabbath. He's trying to reclaim the Sabbath and say, no, you've taken the Sabbath, which was intended by God to be a gift and something good, you completely obliterate it. I'm taking it back. All right, we'll see how Jesus does that. Before we jump into the text, what I want to do is I want to try to root our thinking a little bit in trying to understand some of the key components of the text. First thing I want to take a look at is the word Sabbath, all right, the concept of Sabbath. So for some of us, we might have a little bit of confusion about what the Sabbath is. We might just think, well, it's Sunday. It's a day off. Well, technically, Shabbat or Sabbath was a day that the children of Israel took, it was on a Saturday. It began Friday night as soon as the sun went down. And, it's, and, and, and it ended as soon as the sun went down on Saturday. So from Friday night all the way to Saturday night, it was a time of rest in which they were to worship God, enjoy one another, enjoy family, eat good meals, celebrate, have a good time, party, do all sorts of good things together that was to commemorate and remember God. It was actually, like I said, the oldest tradition in the Bible because it's rooted in creation itself. Unlike Passover, Passover came several hundred years later. Unlike uh, the sacrificial system, which came hundreds of years later, um, the Sabbath or the Shabbat is actually rooted in creation itself. It was intended to be this rhythm that God established. You work six days, seventh day you rest. Now, the reality is, is that God gave this because he says, I give this to you because I work six days and on seventh day rested. Now, what does it mean? 
Did God rest because he was tired? Or did God rest because he was satisfied? God really rested not because he was tired, but because he was satisfied. And so what God does is he says, just like I rested, because I'm satisfied with what I've done, I want you also to rest. You want to know one of the reasons why sometimes you guys don't rest? You're never satisfied. Right? Isn't that true? Some people might say, I'm a workaholic. No, you're an idol worshiper. You can't rest because you worship idols. You worship your work. You're trying to find some sort of identity in your work. You're chiseling away at your idol. It's never accomplished. It's never enough. It's never complete. It's never complete. You can never look at it and be like, it's complete. God's in it. It's done. You have to keep chiseling it away, keep working at it, keep fine-tuning it, keep moving and working it, massaging it, and making it happen, and your work is never complete. Therefore, you never rest. And God instituted the Sabbath to say, six, five, six days I worked, seven days, seventh day I rested because my work is complete. And God basically saying to his people, if you follow me, if you love me, follow this rhythm. Work six days, seventh day rest. But some of you might be like, well, the work's not complete. You know what God would say? He would say, trust me. The work will still be sustained. The business won't go away. Things won't stop. You want to know the reason why some of us don't work? It's because we don't believe that. It's not an issue of workaholism. It's an issue of distrust in God. We don't trust that God actually will sustain things. We don't trust that he really is the ruler. We don't trust that he is the king. We don't trust him. We trust ourselves. And what we do is we look at and we think, unless I'm always in the ditch doing something, always working, always moving, never being able to pull away from it, this thing will die unless I'm there. What you're actually saying is I'm the Savior. And without me, my world will crumble. And what God is saying is, you know, trust me. I'm the Savior. I'm the King. Without me, the world will crumble. And God's saying, do you trust me? If you trust me, then you should be able to walk away from your work and let it rest, just like I walked away and let it rest. That's the point. Problem is, some of us don't do that. So God basically would say oftentimes, you impose a rest upon yourself, rest, or rest will be imposed upon you. That's the way it works. I'll give you an example of this. For me, I take one day off throughout the week. It's about it. My one day, I don't make phone calls. I don't look at texts. I don't check out emails. I don't do a lot of stuff. I'm kind of an introvert. What I like to do, I like to go for long bike rides, long runs, just something where it's just by myself or hanging out with my family. That's about it. Sometimes, sometimes I'm not always good at that. And what ends up happening is I end up working a lot. And what ends up taking place is kind of like what happened to me this past week. On Monday, I was sick. I had the flu all day Monday, and it's continued all the way throughout this week. So I took a couple of days off this week. So what happened for me, because maybe perhaps I wasn't as good at being taking care of my own body and resting, rest was imposed upon me. I got sick. So the point of the matter is this, is that we need to recognize how important it is to rest. It's part of the rhythm that God established and institutes for his people. It's part of the fact, do we trust God? Do we love God? Do we know that God has all things in the, in the palm of his hand, that he's in control? Two other things to recognize is that, again, one, the Jews would recognize that this has to do with creation, that they are God's created beings. God loves them. He designed them for himself, and therefore he gifted them and outfitted them with all sorts of gifts, good talents, and so on and so forth, but that those gifts ultimately find their source in God, not in you. So some of you might be like, I'm invaluable. Without me, the whole thing will crumble. 
you know that God actually gave you that gift. You're replaceable. No, I'm not. You're replaceable. You'll die one day. Like, maybe later than sooner, but you will die one day. You will be replaced one day. The point of the matter is, is that God wants us to understand that all things actually come from his creative hand. The second thing that the Sabbath also would imply is the concept of the Exodus. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, 15, God says, keep the Sabbath to, remem- to remind yourself of the fact that you are redeemed from, um, from Egypt, and therefore I brought you out of Egypt, and you belong to me. In other words, recreation, new, new birth, new creation, that you have been given new life, and that new life is in me. So the whole point of the Sabbath was to help people to understand that God is in control, that God's the creator, and that God's the redeemer, both creator and redeemer. How do we identify that? We rest. We take time off. We spend time with family. We worship God. We read a good book. Go for a nice long walk. Do whatever. We just recognize the fact that God is in control. Now, what had happened was, was you have sort of the religious system that had come in and sort of hijacked that. And that's kind of where we now take a look at the second thing, kind of set the stage, is the Pharisees, all right? The Pharisees are really an important element or character within the whole story of Jesus because these guys constantly make their way in all sorts of scenarios and cameos throughout the storyline of Jesus. And most of us oftentimes, when we read them, we just immediately think Pharisees were the bad guys. They're the ones that wore the black hats. They were the ones that always, every time they showed up on the scene, like the, you know, the minor notes start playing if it was a video you're watching. And they're the bad guys. You know, the sun always gets eclipsed whenever these guys show up on the scene. It's like dark tones happen. Everything's desaturated. It's like they're bad guys, all right? In some sense, there's an element of truth to that because the gospel writers rarely, if ever, put the scribes and Pharisees into a positive light. They're always pointing out how they're colliding, clashing with Jesus and rather than working together with him. So there is an element of truth to that. But the point of the matter is you need to understand that the religious leaders, the Pharisees in particular, were very well respected in the first century. These were sort of the... You know, maybe if you brought up in Catholicism, I was brought up in Catholicism, these would be like the priests, or these would be like cardinals, or high office people that are bishops over a church. Like, when they showed up, you would, you would feel a sense of respect and awe for them. Like, oh, man, you know, Rabbi so-and-so is here, and he's super important, and, you know, we got to respect him and honor him because you know, the guy knows God, he knows God's word, and he prays a lot, and he gives a lot of money away to the poor, and he's fasting twice a week, and this guy's just... This guy's a super Christian, and the reality is, is that they were highly respected. Now, a couple things to understand about these guys is that these were sort of, they were unofficial. There was no official title that these guys held throughout Israel. However, they were very powerful. They were very powerful because they were powerful in the court of public opinion. And the way that they basically ruled was not by an official title, but by way of intimidation. Something that the Bible actually calls the fear of man. They would rule and control by way of intimidating people. So they would show up in the congregation or in the church or in the synagogue, and if you weren't doing something right, let's say you went out and got a tattoo, and they're like, you shouldn't get a tattoo, God hates that, or whatever, you know, they would have all these rules and religious structures set or superimposed over it to make you feel really bad, like, oh, man, I smoked a cigarette. Is that okay? No, you're going to go to hell. And you're like, ah, really? Like, uh, and, and they would make, they would intimidate you. They would intimidate you to the point where you would feel bound and oppressed and feel bad. And so that was sort of the idea or the vibe in a lot of ways that these guys sort of had over the people. And they really, at the end of the day, they worked from a position 
where their desire really was to purify Israel. <laughs> their desire was to purify Israel. Um, some of the other people in the first century actually described them in this particular Hebrew word. Uh, perishim, which literally meant separatist, or tzaddikim was another word that was given to them, which meant the righteous ones. So these guys were righteous and separate. In other words, when they showed up on the scene, you're like, oh my gosh, the holy ones are here. The holy one has arrived. And that was the way that they basically operated. Now, most scholars actually would believe that the religious movement called the Pharisees started several hundred years before Jesus came. During the time of post-exile is what it was called, children of Israel had gone into exile to Babylon. And after Babylon, God brought them out of exile through the ministry of a guy by the name of Nehemiah and then uh, by a guy by the name of Ezra. When Ezra came into the land, Ezra was a priest. And what Ezra recognized was that the way that the, the, the Jews or the children of Israel are going to stay in the land this time, rather than being taken off and brought into exile, is, well, let me ask you this. How would you think, if you a Jew trying to rebuild Israel, knowing that you just came back from an exile and punishment from God, what would you think would be the number one thing that would keep you in the land from this point forward? What do you think it would be? Anybody? Audience participation now. What do you think it would be? What would be the one element that would actually keep you in a right relationship with God and keep you in the land? Following God's law. Perfect. That's exactly what I'm looking for. Obedience. Obedience to God's law. Like they recognize that obedience to God's law was what was going to keep them in the land. So these religious leaders, when they came back, they basically said, the reason why we were taken off into slavery, into exile before, was because we didn't obey God's law. We didn't follow God. We weren't obedient to God as a nation. We, we followed after other deities, other gods, rather than the true living God. And therefore, we paid for it. So now that we're back in the land, what we need to do is make certain that we follow God's law. So the religious leaders, they, store, they started kind of this brotherhood. We would later, it would later develop into what we would recognize as the Pharisees. And their sole goal was to keep the people of Israel focused on God, centered on God, that God would be centered, God's law would be centered. Let me ask you, is there anything wrong with a movement that says we want to make certain that God's word is central? No. In fact, that's excellent. In fact, if you're like, yes, that's a problem, that's a problem, all right? That's not good. Like, that's a good desire to say we really need to keep God's word central. I would agree with that. Problem is, is that what had happened was these guys became sort of the sole protectors of it. So what they did is they kind of developed rules to try to help ensure that God's people would walk according to God's ways. So let me, let me try to give you a little bit of a diagram. The next slide, because I know most of you woke up this morning, you're like, I really desire a diagram from Pastor Brian. So that's what I did for you. I designed a diagram for you guys because I know you wanted this. So I want to give you this little diagram. It might help explain a little bit what we're talking about. At the center of this diagram, these kind of concentric circles, at the center of the diagram is God's holy law, the Torah. That's what's most important. That's the center of the target. That's what everybody wants. What happens is on the out, outer of that, the, the, the black line, is this is the body of rules and traditions that were established and enforced by the scribes and Pharisees in order to make certain that the, religion, that the people of Israel would follow God's law. So they set all these rules and restrictions around God's law to kind of insulate it, to protect it, to say, if you walk according to these laws and these rules and regulations, then you will actually uh, walk in accordance with God's Torah, God's law. And therefore, we won't be judged as a nation, we won't be thrown into exile, and we won't be brought into slavery. So really the goal is to say, we want to walk in life. 
That was their goal. Pharisees, they were like, we want you to walk in life. We want you to have God's best for your life. In order to do that, here's my rule book. It's twice the size of the Bible, but follow it nonetheless, and you'll be fine. That's kind of the idea of what was going on. So on the outer level, you have God's people. And in between God's people and God's holy Torah is this other rule book of regulations that says and gives all sorts of examples on how to do this. I'll give you an example of how this worked out. For example, if we're looking at the Sabbath, might as well stick with that analogy. The Sabbath was God's way of saying, have set up in your life a rhythm of rest. Work six days, seventh day rest. Take a day off. Enjoy me. Now, what that word rest means was very important to the religious leaders, the Pharisees. They said, we've got to really get to the bottom of that. What does rest mean? All right, and what are things that would violate rest? So, because we don't want to break God's law, we want to make certain that everybody follows the rules to make sure that we are a nation of people that follows God's law and we keep this rest. So they would start looking at all sorts of things that would maybe violate rest. So, for example, cooking a meal for a mom on Saturday, the Shabbat, is that restful or is that work? Well, most moms would be like, it's a lot of work. All right, if you're a dad that cooks, you know, it's kind of a lot of work. You might like it, but rea- reality is cleaning up, washing dishes, uh, having complaints about your meal, all that other type of stuff constitutes for not very happy. All right, so the point of the matter is, is these guys would come along and say, you can't make food on Shabbat because that's a violation of Torah. So make a meal the day before and then just eat leftovers on Shabbat, on Sabbath. I'll give you another example. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example right out of some of their books, some out, out of some of their literature. Um, there was a guy, he asked this question. This is kind of the way the rabbis oftentimes would do it. They would ask questions and they would give answers. He asked this question, whence do we know, or where do we know, that in the event of a human life, um, that in the event of danger to human life, all laws of the Sabbath are superseded? So he's asking the question, is there a time on the Sabbath if somebody's life is threatened, that we can actually do something, right? So this kind of shows you kind of the silliness of how far this goes. And so it goes on and says this. Then Rabbi Ishmael answered and said, if a thief is breaking in, it's permissible to kill him. Like, really? Like, you needed to tell me that? I mean, the flip side of it is, here you are in your house watching football on Sabbath, all right? All of a sudden, guy comes in, he's got a gun, he's pointed at your wife, and you're like, I can't do anything, it's Shabbat. Sorry. <laughs> like, that's absolutely silly. But the point of the matter is, because Rabbi Ishmael said, it's okay to kill him, you can actually grab your gun and kill him. It's all right. It's all right. Go ahead and kill him, use a bat, whatever you want. Self-defense, it's fine. It's okay to kill somebody on Shabbat just in case your life is in danger. Thank you. All right, the point that I'm making is that every, they were very careful to want to make sure we don't want to violate God's law. So the motivation, I would say, is good. The method is horrible. The method becomes oppressive. Someone shouldn't be sitting there on sub- Sabbath, you know, like, should I kill this guy? He's about to hurt my family. Like, I don't know. I don't want to break God's law. It's silly. But this is the way oftentimes religion comes in and imposes itself upon God's life-giving work and turns us into legalists. That's what was happening. I'll give you another example. This was taken out of what's called the Talmud. And what had happened was, you need to know this, is that there are two forms of 
understanding of God's word the way that the Jews had lived for a century. They would have what was called the written word, the written Torah, which was what we would call our Bibles. And they would have what was called the oral Torah or the oral word. Oral word, oral Torah actually dated all the way back to you know, the time of Moses. And these were sort of all the lines between the lines, the commentary upon God's word. That's kind of what it was. And so about 200 years after Jesus lived and died, uh, a book of all of the oral Torah, oral writings were kind of composed and brought together. And this is actually called the Talmud. You can buy this today. It's online. You can download it, so on and so forth. But these are all the rules and regulations that were basically the, the oral words, the oral traditions that were passed down. Here's a, one of the examples of this. So it's, again, the issue is like, on a Sabbath, can a woman, um, you know, supposing she's the one who's going to bake bread, can she bake bread? So here's, here's the issue. And this will actually play into our story. It says this, in the case of a woman... But when a woman rolls wheat to remove the husk, so imagine, you know, for us, we go to the, you know, Trader Joe's and we buy a big old pound of, you know, wheat. They didn't do that back then. They would get the big old thing of grain. And so they would actually have to separate the grain from the husk and so on and so forth. It was, it was a big, massive pro- process that they would go through. But imagine, uh, here she is on a Sabbath and she wants to make bread. So it says this, in the case of a woman rolls wheat to remove the husks, this is considered sifting. If she rubs the heads of wheat, it's considered threshing. If she cleans off the side adherences, it's considered sifting out the fruit. And if she bruises the ears, it's grinding. So in other words, if you take this little wheat berry and you're like crush it, it's got a little dent in it, she, you ground it, all right? That, that constitutes grinding. So if you grind, thresh, do any of that, that's considered work. You can't do that. If you do that, you violate Sabbath. So the way to keep Sabbath, don't grind. Don't crush the wheat. You walk into a grain field, don't pick, you know, the little grains of head, the wheat, and kind of rub it in your hand. If you do that, you're like, you know, you're going to accidentally separate the little husk from the little wheat berry, and you throw that wheat berry in your mouth, start grinding it, like, wow, this is good. Like, you're grinding. Like, you are working on Shabbat. You shouldn't do that. You're, you're completely violating God and his law. That was the idea. That was the way it was to be viewed. So, again, like I said, this sort of sets the stage for what Jesus is going to begin to do and say. And with that, I want to begin to take a look at the two little cameos, two little storylines that Mark is going to talk to us about having to do surrounding about the actual um, Sabbath itself. In uh, chapter 2, about verse 23, it starts with this. It says, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as, they made, and as they made their way, he and his disciples, they began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, in reality, what Jesus was doing was not unlawful. God actually made provision. He's doing what's actually called gleaning. It was, it was probably a path walking through a public grain field. And what Jesus was doing is kind of walking through with his disciples. It's on a Sabbath. You know, if you guys walk through a bunch of grass, have you ever, like, walked through grass and you just kind of put your hands out? That's what they're doing. Instead of grass, it's just barley or some sort of grain. They're walking through, and they're picking it up, and they got it in their hands, and they're like, ah, check it out. Like, they start doing that little thing like that and pop it in their mouth, and now they're grinding and sifting and doing all this stuff, and it just so happens to be the Sabbath. So here's the question. Who's there? The Pharisees. Is Jesus in the middle of a metropolitan area, in the middle of a town? No. He's in a field. So what does that tell you about the Pharisees? 
these guys are literally like ninjas following Jesus everywhere. All right? They're the paparazzi. They're like, we will find you no matter where you're at, whatever you're doing. We will track you down. We have a GPS on you. We will always locate you because we know where you're at and we're going to find something wrong with you. Here's the amazing thing. Did they find something wrong with Jesus? Yes. Was Jesus perfect? Yes. Who was wrong? They were. All right, this is the amazing thing. Because, like, people are like, I can find wrong with any preacher. Of course you can. They found stuff wrong with Jesus. All right? Like, the, that, that's not surprising to me. I mean, people sometimes can come to me. They're like, I don't like your sermons. There's stuff that I don't like that's wrong. Look, email me. I can tell you everything that I think is wrong with what I'm doing here. There's lots of stuff that I say that I wish I could have said again or said differently or said better, which I can take back. The issue is not really, is there something wrong? The issue oftentimes, at least in the case of the religious people, they were looking for something to nail Jesus on, and they found it. So on the technicality, they pull Jesus aside, and they're like, why are you breaking the law on the Shabbat? Now, Jesus was technically not breaking God's law, that middle dot. He wasn't. He was breaking the the belt, the band, the black belt that was around God's law intended to protect God's people in the form of the oral Torah or in the form of the traditions of the religious leaders. That make sense? Jesus never broke God's law. Never broke God's law. He did break the traditions of the religious people. Okay, so here's what's going to go on. Jesus now will actually respond to their question in a classic rabbinic style because Jesus responds to the question with a question. That's what rabbis would do. You ask them a question, and they come back to you, not with an answer, but with another question. That's what Jesus does. And he says to them, and when the Pharisees were saying this to them, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, uh, how they had entered in the house of God, the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful of any but the priest to eat and also to give it to those who were with them. So the point of the matter that Jesus is actually saying is that he makes reference to a time of the life of this guy by the name of King David. Now, most Jews all know who King David is. King David was a very important uh, figure in the life of the people of Israel. Go to Israel today, you'll see King David falafel stand, King King David, you know, Texaco station, King David hotel, King David liquor store, King David beer, King David everything. It's just King David everything. They love King David. But Jesus is making reference to a time of King David's life just shortly after he was appointed king. Now, if you know anything about the life of King David, even though he was appointed king, did he immediately ascend to the throne? No. He sent it out in the wilderness. He ran for his life for for many, many months. What Jesus is actually doing is he's pointing to the time of King David's life after he was appointed king. So King David is the appointed king running for his life in exile. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, if King David did it, how come I can't do it? And he points to this moment of time, and it's as if to say, King David was a king in exile. Nobody knew it. He was appointed, but he was a true king. It's just me. I'm greater than David. And if David ate the bread in the tabernacle that was only to be given to the priest, and God didn't strike him down or kill him because David was hungry. He needed to eat. David was running for his life. He needed to run. So on a Sabbath, David wasn't like, oh, can't run. There's like running laws on Sabbath. I'm not allowed to run. 
It's kind of funny because even throughout the history of the church, the church has done a good job at creating all sorts of ex- extraneous rules to God's Bible, to the, to the Word of God. I'll give you an example. I love the Puritans. I've always been a big fan of the Puritans. There are a lot of things the Puritans did that I really don't like. I'll give you an example. The Puritans had this idea about the Sabbath, that you shouldn't do anything on Sabbath. Playing, having recreation on the Sabbath was wrong. So going outside, throwing the football with your boy is wrong. You shouldn't do that because God, after all, doesn't want you to have fun on the Sabbath. You have fun, you laugh, you're violating the Sabbath. So don't play football with your son on the Sabbath. And I think that's really sad. Some people will look at it and be like, God just wants you to be miserable, like him, on the Sabbath. (laughs) You know? And unfortunately, that's not the picture of God. Jesus comes back and says, nope, Sabbath has been hijacked. I'm taking it back. I'm reclaiming right and ownership over it. Because Sabbath was intended to bring life. It was intended to bring back life. It was intended to help people, to be a blessing to people. It was intended to be a time to reflect upon God's greatness and God's power. It was a time to bring joy and replenishment of hope and help and strength and life and vibrancy to someone's life and someone's relationships. But the religious leaders do what religious leaders do best is they turn it all into a religious chore. And so what we begin to see here is that Jesus is saying in very quick and uncertain terms, I am greater than David. And then he goes on to say, In verse 28, uh, verse 27 actually, and then he said to him, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. So here's what Jesus does, is he takes the Sabbath, in essence, takes it out of the hands of the religious leaders, who in essence, he's saying, you have destroyed, you have straightjacketed it, you have ruined it, you have hijacked it, you have broken it. I'm taking it back from you, and I'm pointing it directly to a place that will give it life to me. Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the king of the Sabbath. I'm the king over all things. And the Sabbath is one of those things that I created and I've given to my people to enjoy. Let me say this real quick. One of the reasons why some of you don't find life in the things in this life is because what is happening is you're trying to take those things, those good things, sometimes gifts that God has given to you, and make them into ultimate things. They become the ultimate thing in which you live your entire life around to satisfy, to fulfill you. It can't fulfill you. It can't fulfill you. For them, for the Jews, the Sabbath. It's everything. We've got to keep it. We can't break it. We can't ruin it. We can't spoil it. We can't soil it. We've got to do everything we can to make certain we don't mess up because this is everything that we are. Our whole life is dependent upon this thing. And what Jesus is saying is, that's not dependent upon it. Your whole life is dependent upon me. You've misplaced your priorities. And I'll tell you, if you do that with anything in this life, it will become an oppressor over you. If you're in a relationship and you make that relationship ultimate, it may be life-giving for some period of time, but if it becomes the ultimate thing, it will end up becoming an oppressive thing to you. If you make it a career... That career may be exhilarating and may be exciting and may be fun for a brief period of time. But understand the small print of every relationship, of everything, of every good we have. The small print says an expiration date. It's always there. It can never ultimately satisfy you. So what Jesus does is he takes this good thing called the Sabbath that God created and he redirects it to himself. I would encourage you. Maybe that's what some of you need to do. 
Maybe some of you have made certain things in your life ultimate things, and they're crushing you, just like the Sabbath was crushing the people of Israel. Or they're turning you into religious bigots or egotistical, self-righteous people. It's crushing you. Some of you might be like, I'm not religious. You know that you can be secular religious. You're like, no, you can't. I know people that are not Christians that are religious vegetarians, and they judge everybody who does not eat like them. I know people that are into living green. I, I, I tempt you. Go down to the yoga center in your SUV, park it out front, let it run, smoke a cigarette, throw the butt on the ground, eat a big steak sandwich in front of them and see if somebody doesn't come out and freak out. You can be religious for religion, or you can be religious for secular things. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, whatever it is that you make ultimate in your life, at some point it will turn you into self-righteous, into a self-righteous person. It will make you critical. At some point it will crush you. And what Jesus does is he says, no, take all of these things and root them in me. Make me ultimate. Rather than crushing you, they will be life-giving to you. Your relationships will be life-giving to you. Your career, life-giving. Your money, life-giving. Sabbath, life-giving. Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. The second little cameo, we'll read through this very quickly. It says this in verse 1, chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether or not he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. I love this story. Uh, they go to church, all right? Here they are in the synagogue, in church. Uh, Jesus comes walking in, and then there's a guy who's crippled. He's got a withered hand, something wrong with him. We don't know exactly what it is and for how long he's, been, he's had this condition. But in their mind, they're sitting in the back. Remember, these guys are ninjas. They're wearing their, like, nice camouflage clothes. They're in the back watching. They're, like, reading their Bibles, but they're like this. They're, like, watching Jesus. Like, like we'll watch and see what he does. There's the cripple guy. There's Jesus. Oh, my gosh. He's looking at the cripple guy. I bet you. They're like in the back. I bet you he's going to go after the cripple guy. And Jesus, guess what he does? He doesn't let him down. Jesus always goes for the people of the greatest need. And you should be happy because of that. Some of you guys come here and you're like, my life is so messed up. Some of you come here and you're like, you're under so many levels of oppression. Not just one layer, but layer upon layer of complicated oppression in your life. And it's so deeply tangled and so messed up. And there's so many things that you don't even know how to untie or untangle in your life. And you don't know where to go. And you're just like, it just takes the last bit of energy in you to get here. And you're like, I don't know what to expect. And these, these people, I shouldn't even be here. And you, you should rejoice in the fact knowing that Jesus is here. Jesus always goes to the people of the greatest need. He doesn't reject you. He's not like the Pharisees sitting back saying, I bet you he'll do it. He does that because he cares. He deeply cares. So he targets this guy. Tracks him down. Goes straight to him. This is exactly what the religious people expected him to do. And then it goes on to say, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, speaking of the religious leaders now, 
Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm? So nothing's been said at this point. Jesus just catches the vibe, right? There's a vibe going on. There's this weird, funky religious vibe that's going on. Maybe some of you have been in that church. You felt that vibe, and you're like there, and something's like, nah, it's just weird, man. Something's not right. It's like everybody's uptight. Everybody's tense and stressful. It's, this is not right. And Jesus is like, look, come here. Speaks to the crippled guy. He looks at the religious leaders like, look, let me ask you guys a question. And he asks him this question. He says, and he said to him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. I don't know how you think of Jesus. You know, some of us are like, he was always just happy. Had like long, flowing, feathered hair. He was just always happy. Wore a dress. He was just like the picture of love and peace. And like, that's who Jesus was. Jesus is ticked off. He is irate. He's in church. And he's absolutely infuriated that these people have come here. And rather than rejoicing in the good that Jesus is about to do because he's going to liberate a man who's been crippled, who knows for how long, maybe his whole life, he's been bound, not able to use his hand, not able to serve God, not able to maybe even, he had kids, hold his children, not able to do that. And rather than looking at the fact that Jesus is like, oh my gosh, he's going to set him free so that now he can hug his kids. They're like, I can't believe he's doing this. It's the Sabbath. This is not right. He's not doing it in accordance of our traditions. This isn't correct. Jesus is so angry that he looks at these guys and then he says to this man, he says, stretch out your hand. And then he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out immediately and they held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus turns to this guy and he says, stretch out your hand and I'll make you whole. In an act of faith, the man who has not been able to stretch out his hand ever Stretches out his hand, and it's whole. He's free. The oppression's gone. How? Jesus' freedom. Jesus linked his greatest problem to himself. That's what Jesus does. He takes our oppressions. He's afflicted for us so that we who are afflicted can be free. That's what Jesus does. He has his blood spilled so that you and I, who work feverishly spilling our blood to try to make some sort of advancement in this life, rarely ever getting by, so that he can give us freedom, so that we don't have to be a slave to that grind, so that we don't have to be a slave to anything except to God. But he's a good master. He's a master that actually cares for his constituents. He cares for the people in his kingdom. He cares for those that belong to him. He treats them with dignity, value, and respect. That's the type of king that Jesus is. The religious leaders, I think Mark wants us to really clearly understand something about them. I think that's just oppressive and deadly and dangerous. And I want to take a look at four things and wrap it up. Because legalism is really a deadly virus that kills us it's amazing because oppression of sickness can be healed um, demon possession you can be delivered from 
debt. Jesus can help, help us with those things. There's all sorts of things. But typically, religion is something that's so difficult to set people free from. God can do it. Sometimes it's very hard. But one of the reasons why it's difficult to do that is because religion oftentimes fosters a sense of self-arrogance, self-importance. That, In other words, this idea of I'm here, I'm doing what I'm doing because of how great I am. You know, I fast twice a week. I am so diligent in my prayers. I give money away to the poor. Look at all the great things I'm doing for God. I've memorized large chunks of the Bible. Look at all these great things I've done for God. Aren't I worthy of being made much of? That's what religion does. It fosters this sort of sense of self-importance. Whenever that sense of self-importance is threatened, that's what type of person you become. Indignant. You get indignant. It's one of the reasons why oftentimes religious people are the most difficult people to be around. They really are. And you're like, I hate religious people. Or I hate religion. That's fine. Jesus did too. And that's the whole point. Jesus is not coming to reform religion. He's come, coming to destroy it. To root everything in himself. To say, I've come to give you life to liberate you, to free you from all sorts of oppressions. That's what I've come to do by rooting everything in your life into myself. And that's what he does. Legalism does these four things. One, legalism makes you unbiblical. We see these guys arguing amongst themselves, adding all sorts of extra biblical things to the, to the Bible that really aren't even rooted in the Bible. And then they're saying you've got to live according to these things. And if you don't live according to these things, then we reserve the right to criticize judge you, mock you, talk bad about you, blog you, tweet about you, send out nasty emails about you because we don't like you. Exclude you from a club. I've seen it. I'll give you an example. One that I've seen predominantly in the modern church. I've been around it a lot. I've been a Christian for, I don't know, 25 years. I've been around it almost the majority of my Christian life. I've seen it. it makes me sick. Here's what it is. Expositional teaching. I've been around a church that is all about teaching the Bible in an expositional way. That means taking the Bible, reading the Bible, reading the text, talking about the Bible, and then doing that. I've been around a system that for so many years it says, if you teach the Bible topically, that's really bad. God doesn't like that type. You need to teach expositionally. It's the only way. I've heard great preachers I highly regard, highly respect, that would make that strong, firm argument. The point of the matter is this, is that if that's the case... Jesus would actually have to be kicked out of the church. Because he never taught like that. We never have one recorded sermon of Jesus where he takes a text, reads it, and then just begins to dissect it like that in an expositional fashion. You're like, well, what about when he opened up Isaiah? He didn't do that. He opened up and says, this is me. And he closed the book and it's like, church is done. That's worship. <laughs> right, that was it. Like, like that's, that's not an hour-long message. All right? I've been around guys that are like, if you teach... You know, topical, it's wrong. God doesn't like that. Here's my point. That is part of the black perimeter. The idea goes like this. We've got to protect God's word. The way that we protect God's word, we have to preach expositional. If we don't preach expositional, then what happens is God's word gets all destroyed, messed up. So we've got to safeguard that. We've got to fight for that tradition. If anybody doesn't live according to that tradition, we judge them. We kick them out. We talk bad about them. We make fun of them. That's the tradition of men. doesn't make you righteous. Makes you self-righteous. You're not righteous. Now, caveat. I preach exposition, by the way. I've always preached exposition. I love preaching exposition. I'm a big 
believer in, in it. So if you come to me and you're like, what's the best way to preach the Bible? I will say, I like expositional preaching. I think it's really a good way to do it. But that's the extent of it. I'm not going to say, if you preach any other way, you know, we reserve the right to talk bad about you. The point of the matter is this, is that when you become a legalist, you become unbiblical, and you become extra biblical. Second thing, legalism makes you arrogant and critical. Imagine these guys come up to Jesus and like, Jesus, we disagree with you. We don't agree with what you're saying. Therefore, you must be wrong. Can you imagine the audacity of walking up to Jesus and being like, I don't agree with you. Therefore, you must be wrong. Let me just say this. If you have disagreements with Jesus or with the Bible, which some of us might, and that's fine, because the Bible's a big book. There's a lot of things we're still trying to figure out. There's a lot of things I don't understand. The point of the matter is, is that you will have disagreements. But don't assume that God must be wrong. What you need to do is you need to be humble. You need to go to your Bible study leader, go to your community group leader, go to your pastor, go to somebody in your life. If you have a 95-year-old grandma who's been praying to Jesus for the past 60 years, go to her because she probably has a lot of insight. Ask her, hey, grandma, I've you know, had some questions about this. I'm not really sure. What do you think? Seek wisdom. Ask wise counsel. Be humble. Religious people are arrogant, not humble. These guys came to Jesus not wanting to learn, but to trap. Legalism makes you hardened and unloving. These guys come to Jesus, and rather than wanting to see this guy set free with a withered hand, all they can do is think about themselves. They were unloving. They didn't really care. They didn't really care about people. They just cared about making sure that the rules were not violated. The final thing is legalism makes you dangerous. These guys were dangerous to many people, but also especially to themselves. They're dangerous. These are the type of people that if they had the means, they would start a blog, and they would say, our sole objective is to defend the faith. Our sole objective is to start a discernment ministry so that we can keep the faith pure. That's our goal. We want to keep the church pure. And so we'll tell you everybody that's wrong. We'll tell you everybody that's you know, not doing things right, and we will aim our guns at them, and we will fire away because we have our finger on the trigger, and we've loaded our gun, and we are God's appointed watchdogs to bite anybody that's, that we deem worthy to be bitten. It's dangerous. Should we contend for the faith? Absolutely. Of course we should. Of course we should. How? Humbly and kind. Pointing it back to Jesus. Rooting it back to Jesus. Always pointing back to Jesus. Not to your cause. Not to all your research. Not to all the things that you've done over the past years. But to Jesus. Rooting it in him. Because anything else that you rooted in or situated in, no matter how good your intentions are, and believe me, I do believe the religious leaders had good intentions. What will end up happening is you will become the oppressor. And you will end up oppressing people. And that's dangerous. And that's what Jesus comes to set people free from. So the question is, is how do we safeguard ourselves from this sense of self-righteous religiosity? I think the answer is pretty clear. And for some of you, it might be like, it's too simple. But the answer is just simply Jesus. We've got to go back to him. And it's not just simply the Jesus I hijacked and I made into my own little Jesus, but the Jesus that you humbly serve and worship confess your sin to and acknowledge the fact that we are all prone to become usurpers of God's kingdom. We need to recognize that what happens is we all have these tendencies. No matter how good our intentions may be, we are usurpers of authority. We want 
control. We want the upper hand. We want to be king. We want to be acknowledged. We want affirmation. We want to be identified. But if you let that guide you and lead you and direct you, no matter how good your intentions are, you will end up becoming the oppressor. And Jesus comes to set people free. How? By pointing them to himself. I'm going to finish this. I'm going to have Chris come on up and we'll close in a song, a few songs of worship as we sing to God and as we partake of communion. I wanted to listen to this because what Paul the Apostle does is he writes a little bit of a testimony of what happened in his life because Paul actually was a Pharisee himself. Listen to what Paul said. Philippians chapter 3, uh, he begins to talk about his own life and I'll read it to you. He says this, if anyone has a reason for confidence in the flesh, he says, I have more. I was circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, which was a royal tribe. He says, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness, under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Remember, I told you the word Christ can always be king. He says, but whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of king the King Jesus. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing King Jesus, my Lord. You guys, I don't know how to put this in any other way, but the only answer, the only way to slay our self-righteous hearts, and we're all there. Martin Luther was correct. He said the default mode of our hearts, the human hearts, is religion. You do nothing in your life, you'll become religious. Even if you're like, I don't believe in Jesus, then you'll become a secular religious. You'll find some sort of cause, some sort of thing to become arrogant and self-righteous over. I don't care who you are. You will find something. It could be sewing. It could be surfing. It could be sports. You'll find something, and you'll become self-righteous and arrogant. And the only way to slay that self-righteous legalism that's in all of us, that religion that binds us, oppresses us, is by submitting and bending our knee at the feet of King Jesus the only king who takes upon himself our guilt, our shame and sets us free. For some of you, what you need more than anything else right now is you need to bend your knee for this King Jesus. Because your life is fractured. It's broken. The things that are in your life are crushing you, oppressing you, destroying you. You need Jesus. We're going to sing, partake of communion together, have it in the back, these little three areas. You can just dip the bread into the cup and remember what Jesus did for you on the cross. His body was broken so that you who are broken could be made whole. His blood was spilled and poured out so that you who feel like you've been spilling your life out can actually be given life back. This is, this is the king that we have. This is how good King Jesus is. This is why we love Jesus. He did this us out of love. It's free. Cost him everything. God, thank you for the cross. We worship you. We confess sin to you. We bend our knee before you and you alone. Just help us to uh, acknowledge and recognize your greatness as we worship you.